0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you The Meat of the Word Q&A with Martin Salbretti, Vice President of the Chalcedon Foundation. Join Martin as he conducts regular Q&A sessions on topics of interest to Christians serious about their faith. These Q&A sessions will continue to cover an ever-widening range of topics, all with an eye to honoring the command to let all things be done unto edification.
1: And then we were dead. So we'll give that another shot. <laughs> so this is Martin Sobretti, and we are here live a second time on August 19th, 2018, for Calcedon QA and Little Meat of the Word. Uh, as I was mentioning before, before we got so ignominiously cut off, uh, you can send your questions in advance to ask.calcedon at calcedon.edu. Uh, we take those questions first, and then we take the live ones at that point. We have about seven or eight questions that came in uh, online, so we're going to answer those first, and then we'll go ahead and take the, uh, the live questions. So we have three viewers, so we're doing a little better than the first time when we got bumped off the Internet. So I don't know where that came from, but we sure don't need that. Uh, ostensibly, the place I'm in here has better Internet than the home. So once I get word from uh, Chalcedon uh, Ground Control that we're connected, we are good to go, then we can proceed. Hey, Charles Roberts, good to have you. So, eating crow. It's time for Martin to eat crow, which happens about every 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago, I published um, uh, something to the effect that I was talking about the Hebrew spies that went to Canaan along with Joshua and uh, Caleb. And for some reason instead of the correct number 12 i had put in that article 40. Uh, some misremembering in my mind had that put at 40 so there must be uh, one and two joshua and caleb and then 38 to make 40. so there's 38 spies in that list but in actual fact there are only 10 other spies so it's a memory mishap where that memory mishap come from i am 40 days and nights alibaba and the 40 thieves i do not know but there it is so the same thing happened last week, so I'm batting about one error every 20 years. Uh, and i just reminded of uh, D.A. Carlson. D.A. Carlson wrote a great book, Exegetical Fallacies. If you don't have it, you should have it on your shelves. Highly recommended. It. And it, uh, he talks about false statements like this. It is astonishing how often a book or article gives false information, and if we rely on such a work too heavily, our exegesis will be badly skewed. Even ordinarily careful scholars make mistakes, sometimes because they have relied on unreliable secondary sources, sometimes because their own memories have played them tricks, uh, which was the case you know, for me last week uh, when I was discussing Job and the situation with Job's sons and daughters. When Carson wrote this book, he even uh, to be fair, because he was of course going to point out everyone else's mistakes, he said, two of my own exegetical heirs received dishonorable burial. So he's an equal opportunity critic, saying, here's some gaps I made, one of them in John 3, 5, in his instance. So scholars make mistakes, and out of all the people who uh, watched my video, one Berean tentatively came up to me afterward and sent in a note saying, I'm confused about what you said here. Uh, How is it that, uh, if I understand what you're saying, Job had three sons at the beginning and ended up with three daughters at the end. The reality is he had seven sons and three daughters, and yet, that same account, new sons and daughters, at the end. Somehow in my mind, uh, that faulty memory that D.A. Carson's coming up with, because I hadn't actually consulted the text, I uh, hadn't spoken to the text for years, and so that what I had in my mind was something very, very different than what the actual text said. So the Berean, who was uh, courageous enough to approach me, uh, was correct, and, and I was mistaken. So uh, I actually put a post on the last week's Q&A to clarify that. So what happens in this text is, uh, to explain it, why it comes, why the memory error is like that. We get this comment like from Hartley's commentary on Job. Uh, in the epilogue, the importance of the sons is counterbalanced by the mention of only the daughters' names. Uh, and then the uh, other points is that the daughters at the tail end are the only ones who, like he says, are the only ones who actually are named, the sons are nameless, they go nameless, as is the wife of Job. And they also receive an inheritance. Even though there are sons to receive inheritance, the daughters receive an inheritance. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, Okay, there were three reports where only one person came in back alive to report to Job. And maybe that was with the three sons. And so my mind was playing mind games. Uh, So uh, if I'm only making one serious mistake every 20 years, I can survive. So so hang around till I'm 90 uh, or 81 years old, and we'll see what nonsense I come with up then. And I pray to God there'll be a Berean there to call me on it and say, "Oh, wait one second. Now, by the way, in the respect to answer, I probably would have done well to also bring in uh, Caleb's own daughter, Exa, and uh, her position as uh, someone who got a double portion of land for her blessing. In any event, um, Crow is not kosher, so I hate having to touch it. There you go. <laughs> Little inside joke for for, for us also had a, a comment come in last week that was just too late for us to deal with and had to do with the notion of the, the two words for new in respect to the new covenant that is uh, made in the New Testament that Christ gives. And what is this new covenant? It is, uh, of the several times that it occurs, only most of the time it's the word kainos, which is understood by many to mean renewed, as in qualitatively new. Versus neos, where we get the word like neo, neo wecon or things like that, and uh, neo-conservative, means uh, new in time. Uh, So if you make this distinction, that's the big if, right? If you make that distinction, then it's unusual that though the new covenant is always the the kainos, apparently the renewed covenant, why is it over here in uh, Hebrews 12.24, does it say uh, the neos, the new in time covenant? Uh, why is it that, that one time it's no longer brand new, uh, well, renewed, it looks like it's brand new covenant? I happen to look up out of curiosity what some online Reformed sources think of this, and uh, right out of the bat, Reformed answers says, well, the covenant is renewed, but the brand new is the Messiah, Jesus, so he's the, the brand new mediator of the renewed covenant. So that's how they tried to explain it. And the reason I don't find that satisfactory as an answer is, I said, well, let's not Play another, make another mistake like we did with the Job citation last week. Let's actually double check this. And double checking is a very, very good thing to do. Fact checking would, would get us a, a lot farther along in our discussions. Uh, normally, I'm solid and know exactly what I'm talking about. So in this instance, I said I'm going to take the extra uh, precaution. And I checked the genders of the words. And it turns out that naos uh, in Hebrews 12:24 uh, is feminine just like the word diotheki. Uh, covenant. So it is the uh, adjective to modify covenant. Whereas Amistius, the uh, mediator, which is then Jesus, next word is Jesus, That uh, is in is masculine. So there's no way that that word neo, brand new, applies to the mediator. It belongs to the covenant because the gender is prevented. So this explanation is you know, hand waving, in effect, that was offered online. So apparently, Philip Edgecombe Hughes, in his commentary on Hebrews, in a footnote on this text, comes closer to the truth when he said, by the way, in biblical times, Koine Greek, the distinction between the two kainos and neos is, uh, did not exist. They were essentially synonymous and did not have the shade of meaning that came into play uh, later. So he said we're actually imposing anachronistically these understandings. Uh, now that's true partially, but the point is that when we're translating uh, karash, the a word for renewed or restored in the um, Old Testament Hebrew, it comes in as kenos. Uh, and so it appears that if we we're talking about the Hebrew usage, then we tend to prefer that. But he believes that there's nothing to be gained by arguing over that uh, unusual circumstance. But you cannot solve the problem or cut the Gordian knot by saying, well, uh, that uh, is talking about the mediator. Well, those uh, genders don't agree. So the, uh, you cannot pull that stunt with that text. So, interesting stuff, I find. Uh, I noticed that not even uh, John Owen in his commentary dealt with that. Hello from the Chicago Proton Center. I'm I'm saddened to hear that you are at the Proton Center. That normally in, implies medical treatment, Diane, so I hope that goes well if, uh, if it's for you. So all right, good. Let's get to the first question uh, that's, that came in online, per se. Uh, Regarding a comment Martin made on a Q and a he spoke of Isaiah 19, verse 23, as a p- implying that open borders was a two-way street. If I understood him correctly, he was saying that if one side should close the border, the other should too. However, it is my understanding of Old Testament law that the civil government had no authority over the movement of law-abiding individuals. As such, would it ever be just for a civil magistrate to close a border? I would imagine this interpretation of Isaiah 19 would be akin to interpreting Isaiah 2, 4, as saying that as long as another country has a standing army our country should too but doesn't the law prohibit a standing army any I would like some appreciation or clarification on this uh, maybe i'm misunderstanding martin or the text thanks so yeah has a second part question but i'm going to deal with this one first so why did i bring up this text it's because it is a text that is a pox on both your houses text it uh, basically uh, gives little uh, comfort to either side of the debate on borders why because the borders are open and they're reciprocated. There's parity in the borders. So um, people who want to have uh, open borders uh, look and say, oh, there seems to be some kind of implied restriction here uh, because, as Rush points out, if it's a one-way street, that's inherently unjust because now we do have respect to persons going this direction versus that direction. Uh, It's like a diode in electricity. Electrons can go one way but not the other. Uh, and under biblical law, justice requires all a parity, you know, one law for everybody regardless, and that would be at the border. So what's going on at that particular border between Egypt and Assyria in the passage is that they make a highway, and the Egyptian can come into the Assyria, and the Assyrian can go into Egypt, and they can serve Jehovah together, regardless of their location. So we have free movement across the border, but it's two-directional. So uh, my point was, in the future, that all the borders are going to be open and multi-directionally open, not one way open. So my point was to not give comfort to either side in the debate over borders, which I was, was actually not going to go. But I'm saying in the long game, uh, certain things are not going to be applying. Now this is where I kind of ab- object a little bit to his thinking that I'm. Uh, he could use my same argumentation and apply it to Isaiah 2.4. As you all know, Isaiah 2.4 four tells us about the time in the future when the uh, nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and nations shall uh, not uh, uh, lift up the sword against uh, a nation, neither shall they learn war evermore. So the uh, permanent cessation of war is taught in Scripture as something that occurs in the uh, era that we live in now. It is something that occurs prior to the consummation. Uh, And the question then is raised, well, uh, should you not then, if, if your enemy has uh, an army, should you therefore have a standing army too, just like they do? That's not the biblical answer, as we well know. The biblical answer is, if you keep God's law, then the sword shall not go through your land. It's laid out there, uh, I believe it's uh, Leviticus 19.16. Uh, uh, the text is very, actually it's played them Leviticus 25.6. But nonetheless, one, one of those texts. Uh, if you want to know it, I can uh, track it down real quick as I'm talking. But the point was that the Bible says the correct, the only way to protect yourself is to uh, observe what we call the um, requirement to have a covering. And that covering is Lord. It says, the, uh, uh, upon all the glory shall be a defense, a covering, a protection. God covers what is glorified, which is laid out in Isaiah 4 or 5. And John Owen, God bless his Puritan heart, did a fantastic sermon on that text indicating that national uh, security is secured only by glorifying God within the nation and observing God's nation. And then the sword doesn't come through and God covers and protects you from all the scourges that might be passing through. Yeah, It was actually 26.6, was I it was, had a better verse there. I will give peace in the land, you shall lie down, none shall make you afraid. I will give evil peace out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. But that's because if you walk in my statutes, verse 3, and keep my commandments and do them, then I give you the rain, then I give you the peace, then you don't have to fear anyone's sword coming through the land to come get you. Uh, that's the only haven. Anything, and I've always said, you know, Star Wars and all these um, peacekeeper missiles and MXs, those are all a sieve that anything can get through. Uh, ask uh, Ahab. He was, had a pretty good coat of armor on him, and the, uh, the arrow that was fired per adventure still made it through the chinks in the armor and he was mortally wounded. So there's no protection except righteousness, and righteousness exalts a nation. Um, But if the foundations are destroyed, what can the people do? So all that to say, uh, it's not that uh, the scripture talks about parity there, but rather has already given us an answer of what should be done. So uh, it is not a justification for a standing army simply because your neighbor has a standing army. Now, if you're an unrighteous nation, you don't have any choice but to use the pea shooters and forget the protection that's actually efficacious. Uh, you're going to have to use uh, not second best, third best, but hundredth best measures, and uh, it will be perforated very, very quickly. Because if God's judgment is upon you, uh, this is the point made in Isaiah 8 for those who refuse the gentle waters of Shiloh, I said then, uh, and, they, and they turn themselves to the mighty waters of the nations around them and want to be like that, then those waters, those alliances, overflow their banks and come and, and drown you out. And there's no stopping it. There's nothing that can stop that. So, so it's very important to realize that uh, in long-time in-game things indicate kind of the mind of God and where everything is tending towards. So the question is, do we want to move in that direction or do you want to move in an opposite direction? Are we actually negotiating two-way borders with folks? So that they can both sides uh, let down their requirements. If not, so that then we have a fundamental problem. Like Rashtuni said, to have a one-way border is inherently unjust, and that cannot be gainsaid because it violates the respect of persons provision. But I, I think it's correct that when uh, Isaiah depicts the future of these enemies of uh, God being converted to Jehovah, that uh, two-way open borders are the future. Not one way open borders. They're not disclosed anywhere in Scripture as such, you know, or verified or justified in any way. All right. Oh, he had a second question. Uh, were there any recommendations for a commentary on 2 Samuel? I was curious if there's anyone out there by a Reconstructionist leading commentator, or one that wouldn't sub- sub- be subtly statist. Now, the first thing that popped into my mind is I knew that Dr. Douglas F. Kelly, uh, retired recently of RTS, had been translating uh, Calvin's sermons on 2 Samuel. In fact, I got a sample of some of the, his translations. I think it was out of Latin, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, they, were, they were excellent. So that'd be an interesting place to start. And I see that they have been published. So we could certainly see what Calvin, through the lens of Dr. Kelly, who we would count a very good friend of Reconstructionism, would have to say about uh, Second Samuel. Other than that, I would probably go to uh, an earlier work by Hengstenberg uh, on the history of the kingdom of God and his what he has to say in respect to Second Samuel is better than most on that count. But uh, apart from these sources and folks that might be uh, uh, sideshows in the Reconstructionist world, that would be where I come. Now, some other Reconstructionists might have a better option and answer. Uh, certainly an area of weakness in most libraries is this area of scriptures, the Chronicles and the the Second Samuels, historic books. That's why I like Hengstenberg, because his emphasis and his specialty was Old Testament history. He died in 1862, I believe. So uh, he wasn't infected by a lot of more recent antinomian stuff, Uh, certainly not neocon material. All right, let's see. Now we have one, two, three, four, five questions left. Are there practical ways that the community of saints here on earth can act more like a true family? Uh, I've always liked what Dr. Rastroni was putting forth in his book um, in his service, because I think it provides those uh, concrete uh, examples of what Christians can do together. Uh, and when it's the communion of the saints, uh, think too uh, the nat- nature of the poor tithe, for example, Deuteronomy 14, also entailed a communal feast where a community was bolstered as a result of the lifting, meaningful lifting out of poverty of those members of the community that needed it or were needy. So there's aspects by that which those principles are um, not just those ordinances which should be kept, but even the principles which the ordinances radiate would also be continually applicable at all times uh, because that's the principle, today of the woman in Proverbs 31, who uh, stretches out her hand to the poor and the needy. So we should be in the same boat, and if we can do that collectively as the church, that's fine. But keep in mind that the poor tithe is a personal thing, it is not institutional. So uh, it's one thing to have a, a collective feast, but it's because everyone is a member of the body and we don't want to then have the um, the one, or the many, if you will, absorbed into the one. Uh, they're equally ultimate, that's an important point, uh, then you don't want to have anarchy with the individual being the sole important area or uh, such massive collectivism that you just have the institution as opposed to that. There's this organic relationship between the parts, and that can be realized when we are doing good and and showing mercy, which is one of the things that is an element of God's law, right? Justice, mercy, and faith. These are the weightier matters of God's law. So when the community of the saints is operating in terms of justice, mercy, and their faithfulness, then that works. This is a far cry from merely being social justice warriors, because everything needs to be shaped by the requirements of scripture, uh, and and, uh, uh, that articulates everything in terms of the kingdom of God, not in terms of the kingdom of man. It's not that man's needs determine it, it's that God's requirements determine our conduct and our attitudes. So it's a very, very different thing than what uh, uh, arises under humanistic ideas of social justice, uh, warrior stuff, uh, which is always problematic because they tend to gravitate towards statist uh, answers, and that's where our problems come from. Oh, thank you for that. There's a sec- I feel Kaiser would be an excellent source. I was not aware Uh, that he has a a series on uh, that passage, so thank you, uh, Benjamin Botkin, for bringing bringing that to our attention. Excellent. I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, Everything Phil Kaiser puts his hand to is gold, in my opinion, and ought to be pursued and studied for those who don't have those resources, so I'm glad someone filled that hole, and I can't think of a better uh, modern expositor to do it than Dr. Kaiser. Would it be better, and the word better is in quotes, because uh, for reasons that you'll get here, would it be, quote, better, unquote, for Christians to make their arguments in the public square presupposing the truth of God's law word, or trying to bring people along with rational discussions? In other words, do we set aside our commitments as Christians, our, our epistemological commitments, in fact, uh, and uh, try to reason on, on their turf, as it were, um, in the public square? So the question is, by what standard are we saying is something better? Uh, do we mean efficacious? Will we re- reach more people? Is that the goal? Or are we going to reach the right people, which might be a very different goal? Uh, the truth, I think, does not need to be shortchanged, but it can be tactically articulated. So it can be a presupposition. Your worldview can be present, even if it is, uh, we're talking about things that, you know, if I'm working an algebra problem for someone, I'm not necessarily going to bring in the one of the many at every single point in the line when I show my work. Uh, I can actually go through the steps and I can have confidence that it'll work because there's a God of order behind all, with all the things that I'm manipulating in the abstract using the symbols on the paper. So too here, uh, if you do this, you always have the risk of potentially, um, are you, the people say, you're not showing your true colors, so you're flying a false flag like you're you're a very rational person, but at heart you're actually one of these bigoted Christians, say. Uh, this is what Otto Scott encountered when he was uh, looking for a job in uh, TV journalism. And they asked him some questions, and they said, well, we can't hire you. You know, you, you're, you find out that you're a bigot. Why? Well, because you believe the Bible. Uh, this is back in the 80s of all things. So if you think this is new, it's not. The war simply is more open now than it was then. Uh, people weren't wearing wires into those um, interviews at the time. But... Auto reported it back to indicate that in fact the filters were already up. Uh, So what do we do in respect to that? It seems to me that uh, if you're going to suffer, you don't want to suffer as an evil doer, but if you're going to suffer for upholding the standard of the the truth, uh, so be it. Now this is actually going to tie in with the question at the end about about having common cause with non-Christians in certain things, what we call co-belligerency. There's a difference between uh, covenanting together and co-beligency, and I'm going to bring up an example from, I think, 2 Kings uh, 3. So we haven't said the last word on this, uh, other than to say that uh, my preference in almost all cases would be to at least have my worldview present in articulating what I'm doing and saying and and explaining why I'm doing it, at least in terms of the actions. Uh, And by the way, there's no such thing as a rational discussion uh, merely because we've evacuated God from the equation, because at that point the discussion is stilted and crippled because uh, one of the major factors the, now man are, is thrown on his own resources for interpreting all the facts. These are now all facts where man imposes his interpretation in a Kantian way, say, because God is not allowed in as the interpreter of the facts. So we have brute facts again, and then you uh, have this carte blanche where my, man's mind is the uh, determiner and shaper of normalcy and reality, and that creates its own tyrannies and anarchies and evils. So, by holding the line in advance, we kind of are, are a barrier, a backstop, hard stop against uh, moving into those directions. Insofar as we uh, hold the line, that sounds a little bit abstract. That's why I want to, when I get to the fifth question here, you'll see how it might play out. Even the biblical example. Question three: The commandment to honor one's parents is easy if one's parents are honorable. How does the fifth commandment apply to those actively at war with God's law? What honor are they due? So this m- level of respect is not the same, th- doesn't necessarily now translate to um, obedience, especially if you're an adult child and not under their uh, roof anymore. Uh, but insofar as that you are under the roof, then of course there are certain expectations that are laid out. Uh, it's like this. There can be a, a, a deterioration over time uh, in, in any family, if I recall right, Nabal, who was Abigail's first husband, uh, the worthless one, was descended apparently from Caleb, who was one of the two who made it through the uh, uh, wilderness into the promised land. So how great a family can fall. And he wasn't due that much respect, certainly. And uh, that so he creates all sorts of problems for any children he might have had, given his orientation. And, and God, of course, took him out of the picture sovereignly. So it's a troubling area, but we certainly want to, so far as it lies with us, be at peace with all men. This would also be, uh, so far as it lies with us, we would also want to be attempting to honor our parents. But this does not mean that we indulge or sanction uh, their rebellion against God. That's not what we're about. Um, but we certainly are to lift them up in prayer, and uh, where they're not asking us to violate God's word, to uh, certainly be in step with uh, perhaps their intentions and wills, especially if they're intended for good. But their motivations are probably going to be bad, and that's a problem. Sin complicates everything, as we've said many, many times in these discussions. But that means we want to, uh, if strong words are going to flow, and sometimes it happens, uh, you can certainly indicate, I uh, regret having had those words with you. My calling is to, under God is to honor you, even in spite of your conduct. And so that's on me. Uh, Your conduct is on you my attitude and reaction to you is not appropriate for, for a son and daughter, except to the extent that I was calling you back to the God who made us both. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to navigate. Once we have uh, parents doing dishonorable things, uh, fellowship is broken, trust is broken, uh, and restoring that sometimes is impossible. But what, as far as lies possible with you, uh, you're certainly in a position to uh, show deference and respect, so long as it doesn't involve compromise. Question four, do you think the way to combat the encroachment on parental rights is a constitutional amendment? Is a constitutional amendment a good way to go? This is something that always troubled Dr. Rushtuni, uh, and let me explain why uh, this had to do with things like maybe we should have a, a constitutional amendment to protect uh, tax uh, exempt status of the church. Case in point, it's a very good example. In fact, I think I'll go with this. So why is it that the church has a tax exemption? Well, right currently, it has what's known as a it thinks it has a statutory exemptions in the statutes uh, but a problem with the statutory exemptions it can always be revised it can be changed even a constitutional amendment can be uh, kicked back prohibition the Volstead Act was undone subsequently that's the uh... and the old joke is the one time that a government fixed the problem that the government created was by actually getting rid of the law so the uh, same thing that happen with an, a, a different group it means that if it's uh, susceptible of a, a constitutional amendment, then that implies that those are rights that can be given rather than acknowledged by the government, and consequently they can uh, what they can give, they can take away. You know, so like with the of prohibition, and also with all statute law. So we need to have something that is more fundamental. And Dr. Rashtuni uh, understood that the tax exemption of the church is based on the rescript of Artaxerxes in the 7th chapter of the book of Ezra, uh, Artaxerxes lays down the law that there should be no taxes, impounds, duties, um, or um, imposts implied against the, uh, the God and his temple and his church, because why should there be wrath against the king and his realm, he said. So he indicated, because <clears throat> if he does tax God in the form of taxing God's people uh, in their their worship, their institutional worship, then that would bring God's wrath. And this was the foundation of the church's tax exemption goes back to Artaxerxes' uh, edict. Uh, And therefore, it is more fundamental than a constitutional amendment or a statutory clause, which are flighty and uh, temporary and uh, don't stand the test of time. Whereas this stands the test of time. It basically uh, positions and pivots everything on if the church is taxed, then the state that's taxing it will be destroyed and the king who rules it will fall. So, rather than have God's wrath, Herzog she says, let's not touch the money that's going to God. We don't take money that's heading to God and how its purposes, uh, and that's where we need to anchor it. So too, parental rights I think need to be anchored in something more fundamental to say it's actually beyond the reach and scope of the Constitution or any attempts to amend it. Um, so all those encroachments need to be rolled back on a more solid principle than the Constitution. Constitution being a piece of paper and a very faulty one at that. Uh, is not going to be the solution to anything. But anchoring things back to the word of God, which will be here when the Constitution is dust, uh, is a much safer haven. A little bit more difficult to pull off because now you have to take that into the uh, public square, as the previous question said, uh, and bring that to play. But it is more effectual and it positions us as a a foundational um, right, if you will and it's not something that, the, that the can be encroached by the Constitution or any amendment. It can't be procured, so, neither should it be uh, by amendment, so it should not be uh, removable by any act of Congress or the government. In other words, all these governments, um, family government, civil government, church government, individual self-government, they're all supposed to find their balance in God. Uh, they're all different spheres, and they all are balanced, and they neither is to encroach on the other domains. So this is exactly where we need to go. said, so, This is a domain not to be encroached by the civil government so it's beyond the domain of the civil government to rule on it. The, second, the, government, the uh, civil government tries to penetrate those domains, and it does so because it seeks control of all things in order to bring its vision of utopia to reality. Uh, that's when the Christians need to push back and say, this is a fundamental right. Um, and it is a fundamental right that's not a constitutional right. It's fundamental. Be, uh, before the Constitution, this was solid. This was where we anchor our lives, and we'll, and we'll take it that way. So, hey, welcome from Alabama. Um, interesting place for the two of you to be. <laughs> I'm talking to Nancy and Don. All right, so uh, that's, that's where we would want to take it. We should probably anchor it in something more foundational uh, rather than to trust the constitutional amendment to do the, do the thing. Now, you might be able to pull the constitutional amendment off, but now that does not secure you any kind of plank that's going to be trustworthy in the future as we've seen, uh, because the keepers at the gate have every intention of uh, subverting the Constitution where possible. It's really a dead letter in so many respects. You have no idea how many times you went to a courtroom. And where the judge instructed the jury and uh, jurors, saying, uh, and the uh, counsels for both sides, he said, I will not hear any arguments based on the First Amendment. That has no place in this courtroom. When in fact, it was a First Amendment issue. <laughs> so uh, they, don't, they, they are cleaning house because everything is going to be steered to, by force to a narrative that suits humanistic um, hegemony, and their willingness to control everything and be in charge of all, including the Christians. So we push back we become the leaven in the lump, to leaven it all, and change it, transform it. The final question that came in before um, we're going to take live questions is this. To what extent, if any, should Christians work together with non-Christians for common causes like pro-life or even libertarian party types? And uh, so I was going to look at this interesting passage here in a Second Samuel, no, I'm sorry, Second Kings. And it has to do with just such a meeting of the minds, if you will, where they're going to get together and have a battle. Right. Let's see. Here we go. So they're calling the kings uh, Jehoshaphat, Ahab, who is the king of Judah, and the king of Edom. And uh, they're going to work together. And a Jehoshaphat says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one, the, and one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Here's Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. So they to now talk to the prophet. And Elisha said unto the king of Israel, who, by the way, he was on very negative uh, terms with, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the king hath called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. In other words, at this point, uh, Elisha was not interested in working with the group if the king of uh, Israel was in the mix. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not for that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel, and it came to pass when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And then at this point, Je- uh, Elisha gives them the counsel of how to win this battle that they're going to go into which, by the way, uh, due to um, human circumstances and weaknesses, they lost ultimately. They should have had it. They snatched, as they say, uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And they, got, they reversed a victory at the very tail end. Uh, but the point is, what does he say? What does Elisha the say? He says, if it were not for the righteous king here in front of me, this righteous cause, the man of, of Judah, I would neither look toward thee or see. In other words, you're invisible to me. Rather profound words, but it's because of the rebellion of the northern house. So uh, Elisha has very little patience with the king of Israel uh, and, and makes it clear. Nonetheless, he goes ahead and helps the three of them. So this, they work together with the collaboration uh, and they proceed, but he makes known his position going in. So too, when we have uh, a co-belligerency, we need not to surrender our principles. We need to be aware that these might be one-issue situations. Uh, sometimes, of course, you, the surrendering of the principle for a particular purpose, uh, in this case, it was a military alliance to gain a victory because all three parties were uh, had issues with the group that they wanted to deal with. Uh, they were able to put it together, but there was a protest made by Elisha concerning the uh, qualifications of uh, the king of Israel, the rebellious tribes up in the north, to even ask him the question to help. He said, "What are you asking me for help for?" Now, it's not quite so serious in modern things. you're doing with a pro-life thing. Uh, this battle goes back, I remember in the 1980s saying, well, we don't want to be on the same street with the Catholic, Roman Catholic, for example. So they were unwilling to be um, a uh, fight um, abortion and, and uh, protest at a court clinic. If there were any Roman Catholics involved, they wanted the objection was they hijack everything. Well, e- even if that were true, th- th- why are you not holding the line so there's no hijacking, assuming this is even the case you know, certain things rush in to fill a a leadership vacuum, that's how it works. So, come in with your numbers and be there. If there's five Roman Catholics willing to march and and work at a clinic, a murder mill, for every evangelical Christian or or Protestant, then those are the numbers. And if you're unwilling to work with them, then of course the the, uh, anti-abortion, the anti-murder contingent is going to be split. Maybe just, there's no choice but to be split, but it seems to me that there's strength in numbers, but the principle of union is a limited one. This is what Jerry Falwell, the late Jerry Falwell, had noticed when he put together the moral of the majority. He says we had to put a whole bunch of things aside in order to unify, because he said if we taught theology, there'd be a bloodbath and there'd be no moral majority. It'd be a, a fighting scramble of, of angry dogs and cats. Uh, and he said, we can't get anything done that way, and we need to get these things done because these are important issues that uh, Christians need to face. And this is, um, across the board, true. So the principle of uh, of union, voluntary union, is that it's going to be a union, uh, a unification of forces for something specific. And that's what a co-belligerency is. It means I'm not your buddy or your friend or your comrade, but we are co-belligerents. We have a common enemy, and on this one point, we can go ahead and work together. This does not imply any agreement with any other agendas on either side, but it does mean we have a end and, and we talked about last week how Rushduni made a point in his co-belligerencies that uh, he would go ahead and protect, say, uh, a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness uh, family who was under attack for uh, something because he realized that if we weren't going to help them out, then those would create legal precedents that would be used against evangelicals and Protestants as well. So he would go help the Roman Catholics. He would go help. People that we would regard outside the pale of orthodoxy, so that we would be meeting the enemy out front there when they were first pressing and testing the boundaries of where they could push Christians into the ghetto. So, if you push back early enough, then the ghetto won't shrink so fast. In fact, we might be able to be expanding out uh, in our influence. And that's why Dr. Rashuni was influential in what he did, because he started er the fight early when it was, uh, and he fought decisively. Good things. So let's see if there's any questions that popped up in the meantime. And again, I want to thank uh, Benjamin Botkin for alerting us to that fen- good news that there is, in fact, something popping up from Philip Kaiser. Let me see what the whole quote is. Yes. yes. Yeah, That's the life of David. So I guess it's going to be a little bit limited in terms of the 2nd Samuel, but not so much, because 2nd uh, Samuel certainly takes in almost the entire life of uh, David, including one of the most important parts in 2nd uh, Samuel 23. Uh, where the Rock of Israel says, speaks to David, he who rules over men must be just uh, ruling in the fear of God. So that's very, very late in the book of Second Samuel. Would you include a right to life amendment to the Constitution? Uh, again, we have to understand that as a stopgap measure. Uh, it's because, uh, and let's explain why. The In Roe v. Wade, which was a terrible piece of uh, judicial mangling, it was assumed that, the, or asserted, that there was say, a penumbra there in the Constitution itself uh, that would uh, articulate uh, the right of a privacy such that a woman would have unimpeded access to abortion services to kill her own child. So, since the Constitution was the apparent occasion of it, then using the Constitution to reverse that would be to uh, at least deal with it at where the poison flowed out. You could then. Put it back in place. Now that doesn't mean it's not going to erupt somewhere else, but we have to understand that uh, it arose out of the Constitution so then you could pack this in. This is kind of what's going on strategically here even here in Texas with the Texas Constitution and some of the clauses that are in it. Uh, There's some fascinating what we call antinomies or oppositions, things that if you look at them saying, well if this were true then how could that be? Uh, And I don't want to give away the store. Uh, I believe that we've published something by um, Peter Allison on this point, one of the more recent articles by him on the strategy involved in dealing with um, the uh, right to life issue in Texas uh, and how to cleverly use, and cleverly I mean in the sense that clever is the doves but the uh, uh, wiser, clever as serpents kind of thing. And so too here, there there is a strategy by which, using these tools out in the domain of codified law, juridicature, you're able then to take that and use it wisely uh, to gain something important that will save lives. So by by tactical usage, you can go in these directions. But we understand that there's a fundamental weakness in the people that they were even willing to tolerate and set and uh, and, uh, and observe what these judges saying in the first place to treat that as ultimate law over god's law you already have a fundamental crisis in america that is assumed that the supreme court is the supreme law of the land and god's law is something very very much below that if it's even applicable at all so until we remove the the um, supreme court rulings on the constitution as being at the apex which they're not in god's view and it's simply uh, false then we have a problem however from, from again the use of these things is, is important to see there's another follow-up question here. Please differentiate between regulations and God's law. Must We obey regulations that go against the law of God even on a small scale. Well, this has to do with the whole principle of where does civil disobedience, justifiable civil disobedience play in with the modern Christian. Uh, And so the general rule is this, that if you're being required to do something that the law of God forbids, or you're being... uh, required to not do something that the law of God requires, at that point you have what appears to be a Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, So if either of those two provisos is not directly affected, uh, you certainly, so long as that law stands, would be under some obligation to keep it. Uh, But also, if it's an illegitimate law to work against it, and you work against it by changing it, See, God's law is unchangeable. Man's law is continually in flux. That's obvious from the amount of uh, the Congressional Register, the massive documents. I think they went to um, morning and evening editions while it was being printed. Uh, and that's the way it works, because it's humanism that's the sin-ridden religion that's throwing out regulations, um, thousands and thousands of them every every day, uh, because the goal is to regulate us into utopia and that's why it does it. So um, so the question about small scale, uh, to what purpose would we want to suffer as an evildoer, which is a term not so much, uh, obviously, we don't want to suffer as someone who violates God's law, um, because that's going to be inherent anyway, because God is the judge. But when you are uh, suffering by breaking humanistic law and is not inconsistent with those principles we laid out, then we have a problem of saying, well, you know, there's no one in the Bible that says I'm forbids me from going doing 120 miles an hour on the road everywhere I go. Uh, that might be technically true, but it is going to get you in a world of hurt and uh, probably hurting other people. Uh, and the biblical principles that would indicate that you've uh, gone gone off the field and you cannot argue from some anarchistic principle that you mentioned the scriptures are, are defining. Uh, but we also have to recognize this in Psalm 9420. The psalmist says, the wicked frame mischief using law. So uh, the law, civil law, humanistic civil law, frames mischief. Uh, it institutionalizes it and puts it in motion in a society. And so what you need to do is d- d- un- shift that law base back to God's law. Why do you think Chalcedon is promoting the law of God? Because that is a law base that actually applies to all nations, even America right now. Uh, it, it applies even when you say, well, you're not going to obey it, right, but then God is going to be the one who brings judgment for violating it, uh, and it's inexorable. You know, the, the mills of God grind slowly but exceedingly fine, so there's no escaping uh, his judgments in time or in history. So, uh, let's see, I would, uh, there's, there's some continuing questions coming up from Crown Control. Follow-up. Business says you cannot bring your own bottle of water in and must buy theirs. Do you give up your right to buy what you want and where to purchase it? Well, if it's a business there, then uh, if, if that problem, see, that's the point is that, that now we're getting into the libertarian discussions. To what extent do does my freedom and your freedom uh, uh, of your property extend if you're saying this business is a Um, public convenience and I have a rule that you cannot say it's a movie theater, you cannot bring drinks from outside in, you need to buy from my concession stand which is the basis by which I'm able to show this garbage on the screen as cheap as I do, not so cheap nowadays Uh, so this has been a a standing issue because they they say this is the condition for coming to see the movie, that you don't bring your food in and we're going to be cleaning up our own food uh, and, and, uh, and waste and stuff like that So does the movie theater not have the right to control what's going on within the four corners of their theater, as opposed to your right to say, well, I want to bring in what I want, eat what I want. Well, what's the, uh, and I'm not creating any problems for them except an economic one, because their expectation is people will get hungry and they'll eat salty popcorn and need some soft drinks to uh, overcome the thirst, all designed, obviously, to, to maximize benefits. So how, how you um, charge 6 of 95 for a large soda, I don't know, but there it is. Uh, and, by the way, it must be valuable because it takes uh, them a lot of time to put together an order at a concession stand at a movie theater. So, um, I guess there's the time value of uh, labor theory of capital from Marx flying in there. And, uh, so, in any event, the upshot here is uh, there's a conflict of interest. And so the question is, why is there a conflict of interest when the Bible always talks about a harmony of interest? It's because, again, uh, we are not operating everything in terms of a biblical perspective. Uh, Perhaps the theater ought to do something, but when we say that, then we're talking about a moral thing, not necessarily a a statute thing. You might have the right to do something, but you shouldn't do it. There are all sorts of things that we would be uh, within our legal rights to do and ought not to do because there might be some other harms involved that the law doesn't take cognizance of. Only God's law takes cognizance of all the harm, and prevents it and, minim- and maximizes liberty and only when supplied in its totality, not when it's uh, piecemealed, when we uh, uh, play um, smorgasbord with it. So, but yeah, yeah what, what kind of grief will you have if you bring in the water? They can ask you to leave. They can It'll actually be on the ticket. If you violate any of the, the rules, we can ask you to leave and there'll be no refund. This is true if uh, you start talking on a phone at a Alamo Drafthouse Theater here. You get one warning, and then the management says you're going to be asked to leave and there'll be no refund. He says, I want my money back, it didn't see my like the, the terms were violated. So if there's an understanding up front and it's placed on the screen, you know, do not bring your own, it's on the front door, do not bring your food in here, and you say, I'm going to bring it in here, and then you say, I protest, I have my rights, uh, but you were told that the condition of entering the theater was on the sign, Don't, no none of this stuff is allowed, so it is contraband at that point. <laughs> uh, the, what an odd use that we now consider food contraband in a free country, but that's because of the dynamics. No one wants to pay what it actually costs to uh, watch the film, so uh, we would probably Hollywood benefits from this oddball circumstance which involves a tinkered eco- macroeconomy inside the theater. The, uh, the, the exhibits, exhibits, exhibitioners, are called them. Let me use that right word, exhibitioners of theaters. <laughs> it's a different word we don't want to use. Uh, they, they operate under a peculiar system where the concession stand is the thing that is the saving grace for the theater and its functionality. And so they're very protective of that. So they create, in essence, a monopoly within the bounds of the theater. Uh, I'm not convinced that monopolies are ultimately uh, sustainable biblically, but you have to work with where you're at. How do we distinguish, Joshua asks, between gossip and faithful investigation when you are reconciling two parties? Well, that's a very troubling question because it could easily be that you, in good faith, are going to go do your uh, your data intake, if your counselor say, uh, and perhaps it's very good at the outset to indicate your orientation toward the parties, that you're seeking uh, to do reconciliation. Uh, that that's your motive, your goal, and that you're going to be protective of the reputations of both sides, uh, and you're going to uh, try to be God's man in this situation. So if you're going out of your way uh, to uh, indicate where you stand, which is with God, and with uh, that uh, we're ministers of reconciliation to the end that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, out of 2 uh, Corinthians five eighteen to 20 uh, that that's our mission as Christians, to be reconciliation. But what happens then is uh, if each side does not get grasp that, and you say, I'm going to be asking questions and getting information, and I'm going to need to then try to do my best to verify it, to be in a position to help. Uh, I'm not here to extract gossip. I'm trying to here to uh, understand, uh, and one good way for it not to be uh, gossip if it's not spread any farther. If it's being used only uh, for a true uh, intake for counseling, uh, then it's kept Privately on your, your your pad of paper, uh, and you use it to consult and work your work through the issues there uh, if when you're trying to reconcile the two parties. Also, it's best if both parties are present at once because then that charge cannot be made, and they also have an opportunity at that time to cross-examine witnesses. When someone says, "Well, such and so," and the other party can can always say, "Well, wait a minute," and apply Proverbs eighteen seventeen. They said that because such and this happened, so then the. Um, countervailing of factors come into play, uh, and we don't get one a one-sided view, a tendentious view. Of what's going on? So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a troubling thing. But you want to at least show where you're at and explain how you're going to utilize this material, and the material is only being utilized for the purpose of a reconciliation, and uh, as background. And then it's once it's achieved its purpose, it stays there. Uh, it does not become broadcast, so it doesn't become uh, additional. Gossip on the street about the parties. That's very very important. Uh, that's why it doesn't something doesn't reach the ch- church stage until after um, the, you know, the elders have determined that it does rise up to that level and that there's more serious disciplinary things that need to go on. That reconciliation has now become inaccessible due to the attitudes of the parties. See, so we have nine minutes left. Uh, that's an interesting question. Are uh, is there materials about gossip? The um, I- I- I've actually taught on this, but the the best thing to do, probably one of the best resources if you can acquire it, and it might be over at Covenant Media Foundation's website, is that when Dr. Bonson did his studies on the book of Proverbs, and there are quite a few Proverbs that deal with the sins of the tongue, specifically gossip, he did a human service to the church in doing his analysis of the book of Proverbs. And the chapters or the sections and the lectures, specifically on gossip, are, are among the best that uh, he's provided for the church. Uh, by the way, thank you, Matthew, for that. I sometimes wonder about church prayer meetings. So if you're talking about you know when people are raising prayer requests, all of a sudden things are being exposed in a prayer request. This is exactly what is dealt with very, very well in the book, The Cure of Souls by Dr. Rushduni. Uh I think he devotes at least one if not two chapters to this very thing, how uh, things are being aired during prayer meetings, you know, various confessions, and oftentimes not, uh, these become prurient, uh, salacious, uh, and uh, induce additional amplification and spread of the stories, the tales, the tale-bearing, uh, and it, sometimes the uh, it can take two forms. One, you might be confessing your own sin, but you then involve someone else in that, uh, and so therefore uh, everyone. And this is why. Uh, there's been a change in the doctrine of confession in Protestantism uh, from early times. The early church had misused these ideas, uh, and Dr. Richter walks through the history of what was going on with church prayer meetings where uh, there was inappropriate use of such information, uh, such that people were having their uh, uh, reputations tattered and torn around for no good purpose, uh, and no legitimate uh, biblical spiritual goal was achieved by it, other than things were being exposed, that uh, there was nothing edifying about it. Right. Uh, if you're not familiar, we have another uh, Book of the Month Club coming up, Nature of the American System. Uh, Chris Zimmerman, I believe, is going to be teaching that. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Ground Control. Uh, he's a very sharp young man doing some U. Uh, M. N. service for us also <laughs> for the cause up in uh, Washington State. So by all means, if you're not signed up, do so. Let's see. We, we have Kim Halbrook asking a question. Why do you think some reform folks convert to Roman Catholicism? It's the lure of the flesh, the mixing of man's traditions, a flawed view of God, etc. I believe that part of this has to do with the governance of church and the uh, question of where authority resides. So um, if you take the case of uh, folks that say have a degree from Westminster of all things and now they're um, and, and uh, understood what Bonson was talking about and yet they still all of a sudden become a Roman Catholic. Uh, they're aware of all the argumentations, but they see the magisterial authority of the of the, um, of the popes as taking precedence and bringing order, if you will, because uh, of the apparent static and lack of order, the complete um, apparent fragmentation of doctrine in Protestant circles. Now, they they've have their own fragmentation issues, too. And a lot of those folks who went that direction certainly have issues with the current pope, some of them so much so as that they hold that there haven't been a, a legitimate pope in decades, if not longer. Kind of surprising, so they have their own little insurrection going on. But it appears it's a question about where you would locate authority. So if you're not going to accept the uh, the Ventilian uh, conceptions, uh, then you're going to seek it somewhere else. And unfortunately, if you're convinced that the uh, the authority of the Catholic Church is actually divine and not merely human, claiming divinity, uh, and then that particular leaven leavens the whole lump and pulls you in. So I, I'm not convinced it is necessarily a layer of the flesh. Those, those that I, people I know who actually have made that transition, uh, the the goal of them had nothing to do with the layer of the flesh. Uh, the mixing of the man's traditions is an interesting thing because they will actually uh, say that that is itself nuanced and controlled by the Word of God. So it's not as if there's this. It appears to us, yeah, there's, they're, they're treating the word of the paradigm, the traditions of men as equal to the word of God, and consequently, uh, this is where all the mess comes from. But it's not quite as, as simple laid out as that. Las Vegas area, ah, well, he's taking his risks there, no pun intended. Uh, but yes, going back to the um, the reform thing, and I think it's really a, a flawed view of God's uh, authority and where He reposes it. Uh, and as a consequence, they have to work very, very fast and loose. And then they find themselves uh, citing uh, all these um, papal uh, decrees and bulls and things like this uh, as authorities. Uh, And they believe that as authoritative as, say, a Protestant might, the Westminster Confession or 1689, or a Belgic or Helvetic Confession or the Savoy Confession. Once we start appealing to these secondary sources, what has occurred in the case of the Catholic Church, they elevated the secondary source. Uh, and but in, in so doing, they believe that they've solved the problem of fragmentation of authority. But it then is centered under something that is in, incorrect. So the one day Zion shall see eye to eye. We have this promise in Isaiah, but it's not going to be on Roman Catholic principles. Their view of ecumenicism is to bring the Protestants back to them. Protestants' view is that we're going to need to have you guys repent of all your Roman Catholic ideas. How God brings us about in in, in getting Zion together is unknown, uh, except that it is a certainty that the the truth is more powerful than the error, the um, and the darkness will pass away in all its forms, including a misunderstanding of church authority and and, and divinity and things like this. It's that divine component. Uh, that's why I, I'm have, if I have a little easier time with a Roman Catholic if they accept unequivocally what Chalcedon taught. That is the 451 provision that there is one unique mediator between God and man, which is the Christ Jesus. Um, that there is no confusion or intermixture of his natures. And This is the principle by which Dr. Rashtuni indicates Western Liberty was founded and that's so why he named his educational ministry after that particular council. But I believe that the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is, does not take it as seriously as it needs to. And it, of course the subsequent councils were treated as codicils, right? If you add a codicil to a will, then the codicil, the final provision, overrules what went before. It's like an amendment to the Constitution will overrule, at least temporarily, what went before until another amendment modifies even that. So, too, uh, what happened in early church history, um, it took a wrong turn, and so we still are facing the effects of things that occurred during the time of the early church councils, involving things like uh, icons and uh, uh, priestly authority and whatnot. Okay, looks like we're done. So uh, again, send your questions to ask.calcedon.edu. And, and uh, we look forward to catching everyone. And if you haven't signed up for the Book of the Month Club, please do. Uh, those are one powerful way to understand a lot of material and to get through it and discuss it. Uh, and if you can't be live, then definitely catch up with us later at calcedon.edu. We post all the, um, uh, they record all of them all, record those Book of the Month Clubs, and you can get the benefit of it. Uh, so by all means take care. I'll catch up with you all. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Kim. Talk to you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Meat of the Word QA with Martin Celbretti We pray that you have been edified by the content that you've heard on this episode. Please visit calcedon.edu for some great resources and Reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks. Until next time. May the Lord richly bless you in all that you do.